Volume 1, Book 3, Chapters 40 through 58 of The Life of Apollonius of Chana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Apollonius of Tyana by Flavius Philostratus, translated by F. C. Conybeare, Volume 1, Book 3. Chapter 40 And again, a certain man who was a father said that he had had several sons, but that they had died the moment they began to drink wine. Iarchus took him up and said, Yes, it is just as well they did die, for they would inevitably have gone mad, having inherited, as it appears, from their parents too warm a temperament. Your children, he added, must therefore abstain from wine, in order that they may never be led even to desire wine. Supposing you should have another boy, and I perceive you had only one six days ago, you must carefully watch the hen owl and find where it builds its nest. Then you must snatch its eggs and give them to the child to chew after boiling them properly. For if it is fed upon these before it tastes wine, a distaste for wine will be bred in it, and it will keep sober by your excluding from its temperament any but natural warmth. With such lore as this, then, they surfeited themselves, and they were astonished at the many-sided wisdom of the company. And day after day they asked all sorts of questions, and were themselves asked many in return. Chapter 41 Apollonius and Damis then took part in the interviews devoted to abstract discussions, not so with the conversations devoted to occult themes, in which they pondered the nature of astronomy or divination, and considered the problem of foreknowledge, and handled the problems of sacrifice and of the invocations in which the gods take pleasure. In these, Damis says that Apollonius alone partook of the philosophic discussions together with Iarchus, and that Apollonius embodied the results in four books concerning the divination by the stars, a work which Maeorgenes has mentioned. And Damis says that he composed a work on the way to offer sacrifice to the several gods in a manner pleasing to them. Not only, then, do I regard the work of the science of the stars, and the whole subject of such divination as transcending human nature. But I do not even know if anyone has these gifts. But I found the treatise On Sacrifice in several cities, and in the houses of several learned men. Moreover, if anyone should translate it, he would find it to be a grave and dignified composition, and one that rings of the author's personality. And Damis says that Iarchus gave seven rings to Apollonius, named after the seven stars, and that Apollonius wore each of these in turn on the day of the week which bore its name. Chapter 42 As to the subject of foreknowledge, they presently had a talk about it, for Apollonius was devoted to this kind of lore, and turned most of their conversations on to it. For this, Iarchus praised him and said, My good friend Apollonius, those who take pleasure in divination are rendered divine thereby and contribute to the salvation of mankind. 
for here we have discoveries which we must go to a divine oracle in order to make yet these my good friend we foresee of our unaided selves and foretell to others things which they know not yet this i regard as the gift of one thoroughly blessed and endowed with the same mysterious power as the delphic apollo now the ritual insists that those who visit a shrine with a view to obtaining a response must purify themselves first otherwise they will be told to depart from the temple consequently i consider that one who would foresee events must be healthy in himself and must not have his soul stained with any sort of defilement nor his character scarred with the wounds of any sins so he will pronounce his predictions with purity because he will understand himself and the sacred tripod in his breast and with ever louder and clearer tone and truer import will he utter his oracles therefore you need not be surprised if you comprehend the science seeing that you carry in your soul so much ether chapter forty three and with these words he turned to damis and said playfully and you o assyrian have you no foreknowledge of anything especially as you associate with such a man as this yes by zeus answered damis at any rate of the things that are necessary for myself for when i first met with apollonius here he at once struck me as full of wisdom and cleverness and sobriety and of true endurance but when i saw that he also had a good memory and that he was very learned and entirely devoted to the love of learning he became to me something superhuman and i came to the conclusion that if i stuck to him i should be held a wise man instead of an ignoramus and a dullard and an educated man instead of a savage and i saw that if i followed him and shared his pursuits i should visit the indians and visit you and that i should be turned into a helene by him and be able to mix with the helens now of course you set your oracles as they concern important issues on a level with those of delphi and dodona and of any other shrine you like as for my own premonitions since damis is the person who has them and since his foreknowledge concerns himself alone we will suppose that they resemble the guesses of an old beggar wife foretelling what will happen to sheep and such like chapter forty four all the sages laughed of course at this sally and when their laughter had subsided iarchus led back the argument to the subject of divination and among the many blessings which that art had conferred upon mankind for he declared the gift of healing to be the most important for said he the wise sons of Asclepius would have never attained to this branch of science if Asclepius had not been the son of apollo and as such had not in accordance with the latter's responses and oracles concocted and adapted different drugs to different diseases these he not only handed on to his own sons but he taught his companions what herbs must be applied to running wounds and what to parched and dry wounds and in what doses to administer liquid drugs for drinking by means of which dropsical patients are drained and bleeding is checked 
and diseases of decay and the cavities due to their ravages are put an end to. And who, he said, can deprive the art of divination of the credit of discovering simples which heal the bites of venomous creatures, and in particular of using the virus itself as a cure for many diseases? For I do not think that men without the forecasts of a prophetic wisdom would ever have ventured to mingle with medicines that save life these most deadly of poisons. Chapter 45 And inasmuch as the following conversation also has been recorded by Damis as having been held upon this occasion, with regard to the mythological animals and fountains and men met with in India, I must not leave it out, for there is much to be gained by neither believing nor yet disbelieving everything. Accordingly, Apollonius asked the question whether there was an animal called the man-eater, and Iarchus replied, And what have you heard about the make of this animal? for it is probable that there is some account given of its shape. There are, replied Apollonius, tall stories current which I cannot believe, for they say that the creature has four feet and that his head resembles that of a man, but that in size it is comparable to a lion, while the tail of this animal puts out hairs a cubit long and sharp as thorns, which it shoots like arrows at those who hunt it and he further asked about the golden water which they say bubbles up from a spring, and about the stone which behaves like a magnet, and about the men who live underground, and the pygmies also, and the shadow-footed men. And Iarchus answered his questions thus, What have I to tell you about animals or plants, or fountains which you have seen yourselves on coming here? For by this time, you are as competent to describe these to other people as I am, but I never yet heard in this country of an animal that shoots arrows or of springs of golden water. Chapter 46 However, about the stone which attracts itself and binds to itself other stones, you must not be skeptical, for you can see the stone yourself if you like and admire its properties. For the greatest specimen is exactly of the size of this fingernail. And here he pointed to his own thumb. And it is conceived in a hollow in the earth at a depth of four fathoms. But it is so highly endowed with spirit that the earth swells and breaks open in many places when the stone is conceived in it. But no one can get a hold of it, for it runs away, unless it is scientifically attracted but we alone can secure, partly by performance of certain rites, and partly by certain forms of words, the pantarbe, for such is this name given to it. Now in the night time it glows like the day just as fire might, for it is red and gives out rays. And if you look at it in the daytime, it smites your eyes with a thousand glints and gleams. And the light within it is a spirit of mysterious power, for it absorbs to itself everything in its neighborhood. And why do I say in its neighborhood? Why, you can sink anywhere in river or in sea as many stones as you like, and these not even near to one another, but here, there, and everywhere, and then you let down this stone among them by a string it gathers them all together by the diffusion of its spirit. 
and the stones yield to its influence and cling to it in a bunch like a swarm of bees. Chapter 47 And having said this, he showed the stone itself and all that it was capable of effecting. And as to the pygmies, he said that they lived underground, and that they lay on the other side of the Ganges, and lived in the manner which is related by all. As to the men that are shadow-footed or have long heads, and as to the other poetical fancies which the treatise of Skelax recounts about them, he said that they didn't live anywhere on the earth, and least of all in India. Chapter 48 As to the gold which the griffins dig up, there are rocks which are spotted with drops of gold as with sparks, which this creature can quarry because of the strength of its beak. For these animals do exist in India, he said, and are held in veneration as being sacred to the sun, and the Indian artists, when they represent the sun, yoke four of them abreast to draw the imaged car, and in size and strength they resemble lions, but having this advantage over them, that they have wings, they will attack them, and they will get the better of elephants and of dragons. But they have no great power of flying, no more than have birds of short flight, for they are not winged as is proper with birds, but the palms of their feet are webbed with red membranes, such that they are able to revolve them, and make a flight and fight in the air. And the tiger alone is beyond their power of attack, because in swiftness it rivals the winds. Chapter 49 And the phoenix, he said, is the bird which visits every five hundred years, but the rest of that time it flies about in India. And it is unique in that it gives out rays of sunlight and shines with gold in size and appearance like an eagle, and it sits upon the nest which is made by it at the springs of the Nile out of spices. The story of the Egyptians about it, that it comes to Egypt, is testified to by the Indians also. But the latter add this touch to the story, that the phoenix, which is being consumed in its nest, sings funeral strains for itself. And this is also done by the swans, according to the account of those who have the wit to hear them. Chapter 50 in such conversations with the sages, Apollonius spent the four months which he passed there, and he acquired all sorts of lore, both profane and mysterious. But when he was minded to go on his way, they persuaded him to send back to Phraotes with a letter his guide and the camels, and they themselves gave him another guide and camels, and sent him forth on his way, congratulating both themselves and him. And having embraced Apollonius, they declared that he would be esteemed a god by the many, not merely after his death, but while he was still alive. They turned back to their place of meditation, though ever and anon they turned towards him, and showed by their action that they parted from him against their will. And Apollonius, keeping the Ganges on his right hand and the Hyphasis on his left, went down towards the sea, a journey of ten days from the sacred ridge. And as they went down, they saw a great many ostriches, and many wild bulls, and many asses, and lions, and pards, and tigers. 
and another kind of apes than those which inhabit the pepper-trees, for these were black and bushy-haired, and were dog-like in features, and as big as small men. And in the usual discussion of what they saw, they reached the sea, where small factories had been built, and passenger ships rode in them resembling those of the Tyrrhenes. And they say that the sea called Urethra, or Red, is of a deep blue color, but that it was so named from a king Urethras, who gave his own name to the sea in question. Chapter 51 And having reached this point, Apollonius sent back the camels to Iarchus, together with the following letter. Apollonius to Iarchus, and the other sages, greeting. I come to you on foot, and yet you presented me with the sea. But by sharing with me the wisdom which is yours, you have made it mine even to travel through the heavens. All this I shall mention to the Hellens, and I shall communicate my words to you as if you were present, unless I have in vain drunk the draught of Tantalus. Farewell, ye goodly philosophers. Chapter 52 He then embarked upon the ship, and was borne away by a smooth and favorable breeze. And he was struck at the formidable manner in which the hyphasis discharges itself into the sea at its mouth. For in its latter course, as I said before, it falls into rocky and narrow places and over precipices, and breaking its way through these to the sea by a single mouth, presents a formidable danger to those who hug the land too closely. Chapter 53 They say, moreover, that they saw the mouth of the Indus, and that there was situated on it the city of Patala, round which the Indus flows. It was to this city that the fleet of Alexander came, under the command of Nearchus, a highly trained naval captain. But as for the stories of Orthagoras about the sea called Urethra, to the effect that the constellation of the bear is not to be seen in it, and that the mariners cast no reckoning at midday, and that the visible stars there vary from their usual positions, this account is endorsed by Damis, and we must consider it to be sound and based on local observations of the heavens. There is also mention a small island of the name of Biblus, in which there is a large cockle, and where there are mussels and oysters, and such like organisms, clinging to the rocks, and ten times as big as those which we find in Greece. And there is also taken in this region a stone, the pearl in a white shell, wherein it occupies the place of the heart of the oyster. Chapter 54 And they say they also touched at Bigade, in the country of the Oriche. As for these people, they have rocks of bronze and sand of bronze, and the dust which the rivers bring down is of bronze. But they regard their land as full of gold, because the bronze is of such high quality. Chapter 55 And they say that they came across the people called the fish-eaters, whose city is Stobera, and they clothe themselves in the skins of very large fishes. And the cattle there look like fish, and eat extraordinary things, for the shepherds feed them upon fish, 
just as in Caria the flocks are fed on figs. But the Indians of Carmen are a gentle race, who live on the edge of a sea so well stocked with fish that they neither lay them in by stores nor salt them as is done in Pontus. But they just sell a few of them and throw back most they catch panting into the sea. Chapter 56 They say that they also touched Balara, which is an emporium full of myrtles and date palms. And they also saw laurels, and the place was well watered by springs. And there were kitchen gardens there, as well as flower gardens, all growing luxuriantly, and the harbors therein were entirely calm. But off there lies a sacred island, which is called Celera, and the passage to it from the mainland was a hundred stades long. Now in this island there lived a Nereid, a dreadful female demon, which would snatch away many mariners, and would not even allow ships to fasten a cable to the island. Chapter 57 It is just as well not to omit the story of the other kind of pearl, since even Apollonius did not regard it as puerile, and it is anyhow a pretty invention, and there is nothing in the annals of sea-fishing so remarkable. For on the side of the island which is turned towards the open sea, the bottom is of great depth, and produces an oyster in a white sheath full of fat, for it does not produce any jewel. The inhabitants watch for a calm day, or they themselves render the sea smooth, and this they do by flooding it with oil, and then a man plunges in in order to hunt the oyster in question, and he is in other aspects equipped like those who cut off the sponges from the rocks. But he carries, in addition, an oblong iron block and an alabaster case made of myrrh. The Indian then halts alongside of the oyster and holds out the myrrh before him as a bait, whereupon the oyster opens and drinks itself drunk upon the myrrh. It is then pierced with a long pin and discharges a peculiar liquid called ichor, which the man catches in the iron block which is hollowed out in regular holes. The liquid so obtained petrifies in regular shapes, just like the natural pearl, and it is a white blood furnished by the Red Sea. And they say that the Arabs also, who live on the opposite coast, devote themselves to catching these creatures. From this point on they found the entire sea full of wild animals, and it was crowded with seals, and the ships, they say, in order to keep off these animals, carry bells at the bow and at the stern, the sound of which frightens away these creatures, and prevents them from approaching the ships. Chapter 58 And when they had sailed as far as the mouth of the Euphrates, they say that they sailed up by it, to Babylon, to see Vardan, whom they found just as they had found him before. They then came afresh to Nineveh, and as the people of Antioch displayed their customary insolence, and took no interest in any affairs of the Hellens, they went down to the sea at Seleucia, and finding a ship, they sailed to Cyprus, and landed at Paphos, where there is the statue of Aphrodite. Apollonius marveled at the symbolic construction of the same, and gave the priests much instruction with regard to the ritual of the temple. He then sailed to Ionia, where he excited much admiration, 
and no little esteem among all lovers of wisdom. End of Volume 1, Book 3, Chapters 40-58